Uh, on Easter morning, we leaned into, two weeks ago, we leaned into the unique reality that Jesus is mistaken, I don't think he was mistaken, but mistaken for a gardener on the morning of the resurrection. That Jesus is uh, seen as a gardener by Mary before she realizes that it's Jesus himself. And why that imagery, I, I've become in the last couple of weeks, I wasn't even planning on, on going this direction right away, but I'm so, I'm so interested in why this imagery is there that I've been sticking with in the springtime particularly. I've been sticking with this, this um, image that I can't get rid of, and we're going to continue to talk about it because in the beginning of the year, as we look at being post-resurrection people, uh, and what Dwayne just said about being a church that actually uh, is a people that are, that are moving and changing, not just personally, but the world around us uh, through, the, through the, the power and the agency of love, uh, that growth seems to matter to Jesus a whole lot. Uh, the church in many ways has been kind of, uh, I don't know, it's been minimized to uh, either a system of belief over here or a one-time commitment that someone makes over here on this side. And, and so the idea is crossing a line. And so once I cross that line, and that line is whatever we want to call it, Jesus has lots of different words, being born again, salvation, wholeness, healing, trusting, discipleship, whatever the case, it's like, all right, great. Now I guess I kind of wait till I die because then it's going to be really wonderful now that I know I'm, I'm going on. And so, so that's not biblically the image at all. I mean, my goodness, Jesus spends virtually all of his time talking about how we relate to people and what God wants to do in this world. That does not negate the beauty of the future hope. But it reminds us that we're not just sitting around waiting. And so, so we want to lean into this idea of not just information in, in our Christian journey as, as people of Jesus, but formation. Because Jesus is way more concerned with, about, with the formation of a person than the information that they hold. This is why the Pharisees got into so much trouble. Their information led them to unhealthy places of exclusion, of um, having things figured out, of looking down on other people, of becoming less like the heart and character of God. That's problematic. And so Jesus says, hey, there's people who don't know much of anything about, like, orthodox faith that have got a way bigger leg up than you hyper-religious folks. And so, so formation matters. So Jesus gives us insight in what does it look like to grow? How, how do we grow? Um, and, and more and more, like I said, I've just been so captured by the fact that uh, when, when Jesus is introduced as a gardener, I mentioned uh, two weeks ago that, that the first time that we see God as a gardener, it's during the, in the book of Genesis in the first, the first chapters of our whole scripture. But there's another time that gardening is referred to. Actually, there's tons. But there's one particular time, even before Jesus' death and resurrection, that God is explicitly referred to as a gardener. And it happens in John 15. And I, I want to read this first. I'll read the passage first. And then I'm going to take us through the context of it. And uh, if you've been around the church for a while, this is a very familiar passage for you. So congratulations. You can, as soon as I start reading, you'll be like, I know that one. And then you can feel good. And all of a sudden, you're in the position of a Pharisee. And then Jesus is going to have some work to do with you. So here we go. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples. I'll explain more about that in a second. And he says in John 15, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. There he is. I like it. 
Okay, I should have these on to read. Okay. <laughs> he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. By the way, okay, I'm supposed to get through this. You realize Jesus talks about the Father cutting off branches in him, pruning him, shaping him. Just like, it's interesting. Uh, while every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean. Uh, pruned is actually the, the literal word there. Because of the word I have spoken to you, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me, that was a little Sunday school song we used to sing. We had to be the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now let's not go fundamentalist on this and say, I can shoot a basketball without Jesus. Because you can, yes, but that's not what Jesus is referring to. Jesus is referring to the long transformative work of changing the world through the power of love that is animated by his spirit. Uh, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. They have no long-term usefulness. Okay, I, that's my words. Just so if you can't, oh good, you can see it up there. You know what, which one my words are and which one the Bible's are. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Okay, there's a lot to unpack in a, a story like that, and we, a story like this, or a, an image like this, and we're not going to get to all of it. Um, but I want you to understand the flow that comes to a, a story like this or a moment like this. Uh, the disciples have just been with Jesus in the upper room in the book of John. Okay, and, um, and so they've, they've shared, this is where the dynamic foot washing experience and the upper room, the table and the cup and the bread, um, where Jesus begins to hint at what's going to happen to him, that he's going to be gone, that he's going to be killed. Uh, it's a very, a very heavy time, and it's in the evening. Um, and they've just shared this Passover meal, okay? And uh, now I want to tell you what happens before chapter 15, verse 1, which is when Jesus says, I am the vine. The last sentence that happens is Jesus says, come now, let us leave. Okay? That's the last sentence, right before I am the vine. So Jesus has this upper room experience, then he says, come now, let us leave. That's the end of chapter 14. Then chapter 15, verse 1, I am the vine. So, what we know is that when they left, they were on the journey to the Garden or the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane is understood to have been. Okay? The upper room would have been in the lower... Um, the southwest uh, quadrant of the city, okay? And the Kidron Valley was to the... Do you have... Oh, sweet. Okay. Kidron Valley is to the east. And so I've circled in blue the things that matter to us. So in order to make this journey, Jesus and his disciples, they have to go through the city and they would have to leave through... Uh, the, now it's called the Lion's Gate, but the gate that led directly across the Kidron Valley. They, wouldn't have, they almost certainly wouldn't have gone outside um, for this journey at night. Uh, but it's during the Passover, so everything's really, really busy, and you have to go past the temple to get out the gate. Now, here's the interesting thing. On the front door of the temple, all right, was trained a massive golden grapevine, all right? This is just one horrible person's little—the person's not horrible. 
one person's little model of, of what we're talking about. There aren't a lot of models. There are no photos. <gasps> um, but anyways, so, so King Herod had renovated this, this temple, all right, several years earlier. This is the same Herod that went after Jesus when he was a baby. Keep that in mind. He's dead by now, but he was the same guy. So, so Herod has, um, has tried to make this temple his defining thing. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that Herod was the one that renovated the temple where all of the... The, I mean, Herod was, he was the king of the Jews. That's why the idea, he was a, a kind of a, a junior king, you know, just to keep the peace under Caesar, the emperor of Rome. But anyways, uh, so, so this place, they're almost certainly walking past it. If they went on the outside, by the way, they would have had to go through a, a, a vineyard to get there, through, through where the, the vines were growing. But, so you know how Jesus loves to, loves to do things. Um, and talk about things that are in front of him. So I just want to leave this, that, that this imagery, we know that this was here because Josephus was um, a, a historian from the first century, and he wrote particularly about it, um, that, uh, that, so as they're passing through the temple, on the pinnacle of the door, right, is this huge golden grapevine, and we're told that each grape cluster was the size of a person, Josephus says, all right? Uh, he records that his be- its beauty was such that it was known as a marvel of size and artistry to all who saw it, with what costliness of material it had been constructed. Um, Herod was the one who put this vine over the doors and under the edges of the wall. It was climbing everywhere, clusters hanging down in it, which for spectators filled them with wonder, so for the art with which it was made. And the Mishnah says that uh, people would sometimes make a free will offering by purchasing a golden leaf um, or, or a grape, like shaping it and donating it, and then it would be affixed to this wall. So people would give, and it would be put up there. Um, the priest would, would do this. So Jesus is, very possibly, regardless, everybody knew about this. Everybody knew about this, but likely and possibly, Jesus is walking by. Jesus, he makes imagery out of fig trees when he walks by them, and he makes imagery out of people on corners and, and people paying taxes as he notices them. So Jesus is always taking what's around him. So we have this hint that when Jesus stops and says to his disciples, I'm the true vine, the fact that he uses the word true probably suggests that there's some other vine that is within thought or view. So Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. I am the vine. You are the branches. So now we've got the moment. Let's now talk about the imagery real quick. Um, What is the significance of a vine to ancient Israel? This is really important. Psalm 80 uh, gives us a glimpse of what's all throughout the scriptures. And that is that the people of Israel were understood as being a vine that was planted in the promised land, or the vision was that they would be planted in the promised land like a vine. All right? So what you can see here is the, 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 the story that would be told, that God's people were a vine or a vineyard, and they were transplanted. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took root, and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, <laughs> and the mighty cedars with its branches. Just take... just. Sit with that a moment. Here's a vineyard, a vine that grows grapes. But it's so grand and great that it covers the mountains and it's on top of the mighty cedars. The mighty cedars, standing hundreds of feet tall, were, shield, were, were, were um, covered 
They were shaded by a grapevine. So this is the imagery that God's grapevine would get planted. He, he transplanted from Egypt, put them in, and they were going to grow and flourish and bear great fruit, right? That's what we're talking about. That's very exciting. Now, the problem is that the vine was not always yielding what it was supposed to yield. So take a look at Isaiah 5. Um, this is something that we see happening throughout the scriptures. So here again, I will sing the song. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on the, on the fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, planted it with the choicest vines. Built a watchtower, this beautiful imagery. Cut a wine press. They looked for a crop of, oh boy. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Okay, so throughout the, the witness, there is this vineyard that is supposed to be the people of God, but over and over, people of God not bringing a great crop. Okay, oh, I'm not, look at verse 7. I'm not making this up, by the way. It's explicit. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. So just in case you think I'm like jumping to conclusions here. So we're, we're, we're very, very obvious about all of this. And of course, what it meant that they, were only, that they were bearing bad fruit was that God's people were not a people of love and faithfulness and justice and mercy. They were looking like all the other bloodthirsty nations around them. Okay? They had stopped caring for the poor and the immigrant like they were called to do, the wanderer. They were not uh, sharing with one another, and people were starving. Those in power were holding on to their power instead of using it for good. So this is what it means to bear bad fruit. They weren't representing Jesus. They were following, or weren't representing God. They were following other idols, okay? So this is, this is the imagery we get. So Jesus is looking at this vine, likely, or at least referencing, and he says, you know what? I am the true vine. My father's the gardener. And you are the branches. So what on earth is Jesus communicating with this simple statement? I think he's talking about how we grow as disciples. And, uh, and I think that includes several things. Um, I think the first thing that that includes um, is, uh, let's just say growth means... Is according to Jesus. I think the first thing is roots. The reason I say that is because according to Jesus, growth requires rootedness because that's what the vine actually meant. There's a reason that the vine was such a strong image. Every Jewish courtyard had two things in it once they entered the promised land. Uh, courtyards were built like, like, uh, like a Jewish house was kind of like this. Let's see. Whew. Okay, or, or like this. But this, this was open. This was a garden, okay? So most Jewish households had some sort of an openness. And in this courtyard were planted two things, a fig tree and a vine, and a grapevine. We're not going to get into the fig today. But the reason that they were planted, uh, um, that they had a, a vine planted in every single thing, is that the vine represented rootedness because of the way it grew. In Isaiah 65, we see this. Um, this, is, this is the image of, of the hope one day. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build hoses. <sighs> That's on me. No longer will they build houses 
and others live in them, or plant and others eat. So what, what their imagery of life was like was that they would become, they would move into some place, but before long they would be pushed out. Before long, they, someone else was eating the gardens that they planted. Okay? And so, so there was no rootedness in them as a people. So the idea of, of planting vineyards meant that their roots would go down deep and they were there to stay. Okay? For God, for, for the vineyard, to plant a vineyard meant I'm, I'm sticking around for a long time. And the reason that I think that that's so, well, no, no, we'll get to, we'll get to the reason that, that um, how, how the plant works and why this was such a strong imagery. But what I want to point out for a moment is that this idea was that this was the promised land. When you, when the vine was finally securely rooted, you had entered the promised land. And Jesus says, I'm the vine, or, and my father, my father is, is the grower, but I'm the vine. And when Jesus says something like that, Jesus is, is saying, I am here to be your symbol of rootedness. Our, our connection with Jesus is the sign that we are living in the promised land, and we are there to stay. Jesus is trying to replace the whole system and say, Israel's hope is right here. The hope of security and wholeness and beauty and peace is available right here. The promised land is not a slab of Israeli soil. The ultimate rescue was not from Egypt. The true inheritance for God's people is represented in Jesus himself. It's life with God. That's the inheritance. Life with God. Flooded with with freedom and love and forgiveness and compassion. That's the promise. And, and within the ultimate promise, I think, is so beautiful, there is safety. Because things can only grow in a truly safe environment for them. And so what we get is, again, this vineyard was a, a, an image in First Kings. Um, during Solomon's lifetime? Yeah. During Solomon's lifetime, uh, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety. And how do you know that they lived in safety? Everyone under their own vine and their own fig tree. And some of you are like, Finally! A sentence I recognize. Because you know this from Hamilton, right? <laughs> Everyone will sit under their own vine and fig tree. No one will make them afraid, right? Um, George Washington sings it when he's ready to retire. Instead of working himself into the ground, he says, I want to sit under my own vine and fig tree like God's promise was. I want to dwell in a place of safety, and that's my vision for America. Unfortunately, that only became the vision for some Americans. And we have a lot of work to do there. But this idea of, of safety, Jesus says, I, I am the vine, and with me, when you are connected to me, there is going to be a level of safety that you've never experienced before. Safety and security, and it, you cannot send it through our human um, geopolitical uh, uh, lens of only seeing things in the physical world and saying, well, it's only if I uh, have enough of everything that I'm okay. Because we know that some of the people that have been okay on the deepest levels have not had everything. They have suffered greatly. But because of their rootedness to God as the source of life, they can walk in peace and wholeness. And that's such a beautiful glimpse of Jesus saying, I'm the vine here. I'm the vine. Cling to me. And there's safety for growth to truly emerge. Um, so, so there's this, this root, rootedness that is really, really important. So growth means uh, having roots and having, having rootedness. Uh, growth, growth also... Um, to be a person that grows means 
that we have rhythms. And here's why this is so interesting, and here's why the idea of planting a vine was so crucial to the idea of rootedness for Jewish people. See, when you would plant a vine, the, the art of cultivation in ancient Israel is not that different than how people um, tend vineyards today. But what you would do is you would plant this vine, and the first year, things would just start to, to, to come up a little bit, and, and you'd start to get these small, tiny leaves. And when they would start to emerge, after the leaves had opened up, you would hack off all of the branches. You just look like you're just obliterating the thing, right? You chop it all back, all the way down, until the second year. And the second year, the branches start to grow a little bit fuller and reach further. And you're like, yes, except no. At the end of the second year of growth, you chop off every single branch. And the thing is just looking like this kind of deformed fist. And the third year grows. And often in the third year, again, everything is chopped off. It's a process. It's, a, it's an agricultural process called abiding. And it looks like nothing is happening, and it looks like it's just at rest the whole time. But what's really happening is all of this energy is being stored up because up until this point, the branches could not hold fruit. If the branches came out, even if grapes developed, they would pull all the way down to the ground. And then they would rot or get eaten by animals. So in the fourth year of growth, you would finally let it grow, and you would see which branches looked the strongest. And if there was little sprouts coming off of that that were taking the energy away from what was really going to bear fruit, then you clip them off. And then in that fourth year, the branch was strong enough to finally hold up fruit. And, and, and some of the, the people would talk about how Jewish uh, vineyard tending was so impressive that when that happened, the fruit would stay ripe for months on the vine. Fruit that lasts. I believe Jesus' words are for it. You know, these days, like, you get like a two-week section for your apples right before they all fall off, you know. But, but this, the, the branches were strong and robust, but it took so much time and so much patience. And Jesus, when he's giving this image and saying, I am the vine and you are the branches and my goal is that you are going to bear fruit, he is implying that what that means, though, is going to take patient long-term cultivation. Discipleship is not a sprint. It's a marathon. I like that imagery. I tend to like that stuff. But even if you're a sprinter, that's not what discipleship is. Discipleship is, and I, I mentioned this in my writing this week, it's uh, what author Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. And so, so one of the images that we sometimes use for this is simply a semicircle where you have this process of Oops, we'll say abiding. Abiding on one side, fruit on the other, and pruning in the middle. And so what ends up happening is you have seasons where God calls you just to sit and be formed inwardly. So that you are actually prepared to bear fruit that lasts and we, we live in a culture, sometimes just a larger culture, but sometimes a Christian culture, that says, bear fruit, bear fruit, bear fruit. Go do all the time. I'll know how many of you, when you were, if you grew up in the church when you were younger, had church rhythms that required that in order to like be a part of things, you were at the church building like four or five times a week. Right? Because that's what it meant. Like you got to always be doing so much stuff. Or, or um, that you're only a valuable Christian if you can name like 
like a kid trying to get into a college that's putting together like their rap sheet of, of all the clubs I was a part of, right? Well, this is how I proved my way. And Jesus says, yo, your job is to remain connected to the vine if you want to bear fruit. And, all, and often that's going to mean seasons of being still. Seasons of listening, not spouting out all that you know, not trying to just do things every day all the time. But then, as you're growing and being shaped, then there's going to be times where Jesus moves you more toward a time of doing and of growing and of bearing fruit. Um, and that's absolutely important to be, um, to be uh, along with and, and to, be, to be willing to step into because it feels risky sometimes. But always, always the connectedness right? Even when you're resting, even when it's a season of fruiting, even when it's abiding, even when there's pruning. This is discipleship, developing the character and the competency of Jesus, right? The heart on one side and the hands of Jesus, right? The relationship, you can say, and the response out, right? The being and the doing, the rest and the work. I could go all day right? This is, this is the story, right? And growth requires absolute patience, and it requires our listening ear to say, God, what are you wanting to prune in me that you want to bear grapefruit, and where do you just need me to sit and be formed? And then, where are you inviting me to stretch out in new ways? But we have to understand these rhythms and, and even be willing to embrace them, because growth often happens very, very slowly. Now, what I, I do want to say about this briefly is just that, um, that the line is not so clear between the being and the doing. Because the being itself is a part of the doing, according to Jesus. If, that when, when we dwell with Jesus deeply, then what we are told is that we will be shaped into uh, something where the fruit of God's Spirit will come out of us. And the fruit listed in Galatians that what Paul writes about, the fruit of being with Jesus deeply are things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, all right? And, and, and self-control and goodness and all of these other things. But think about how many of those things are a blessing to other people around you, even though they're the things that are going to be shaped internally from your being with Jesus. So the being and the doing are all together sometimes when we're talking about character formation. If we sit with Jesus long enough, we will find that what emerges from us naturally are things that bless and value and include other people and show love in active ways. Uh, yeah. And because it starts internally and not by following a bunch of rules, Jesus doesn't say, be patient. He says, remain in me. And patience will emerge. This is a big difference. It's not like trying to grow a mustache by going... Mm just leads to frustration. It took me 26 years. But you, you can't rush the process. You have to, uh, there's this, uh, this image um, in Acts, Acts 4, uh, and um, two of Jesus' disciples, uh, Peter and John, are called before the Sanhedrin because they've been preaching. This is after Jesus had left. And here's what we're told. It's really, really cool. They get into hot water, but we're told they, this is the, the religious leaders, they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men and they were astonished 
and they took note that these men had been taught by Jesus. Anybody catch my mistake there? Yeah. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. See, what they're impressed by is not their knowledge. (laughs) They noticed that they were unschooled. They were impressed by their courage. They saw the courage of these men to step up and proclaim the story of Jesus. And they said, wow. And they they noticed that the difference in these guys is that they've, they've been with Jesus. They talk in a different way. I'm imagining. They talk in a different way that shows they've been with Jesus. Not just like figured out a bunch of the information, but been with Jesus. I I long for that to be the witness of a church like ours. That if people notice what we do, how we treat others, the posture that we have that embraces brokenness and confusion and doubt and mystery and all of those realities that are a genuine, healthy part of faith, then they, they note... You know, this church might have a lot of gaps. Might, might be kind of weird people. But they've been with Jesus. Like, there's a lot of them that have kind of issues with the church. But they've been with Jesus. They're in community. You know, um, they're super passionate about whatever things they're involved in. They've been with Jesus. Um, and there's a groundedness that comes when that's the case in our lives. And the final thing. Uh, the final thing that growth means, and this is an interesting one, is uh, my purple, my purple pen go here it is, and that is, and I'm offering this to all of you, my friends, to keep everything in the same letter. Um, got another one. Release. Remember the golden vine at the entrance to the temple I told you about. Uh, Josephus records that often those who gave generously to the temple had their names inscribed on the golden leaves. Okay? This was a custom, this is again Josephus, this was a custom that all were familiar with in Jerusalem. Attention, uh, essentially, their names became attached to the vine when they gave a lot of money. I don't know if there's any parallels there in our world today. But Jesus is looking at this vine that all these names are attached to. And Jesus says, I'm the true vine, remain in me. And what Jesus is saying, I think, is he's calling out empty religion. And he's saying, you're going to have to release the need to be attached to false vines in order to hold on to where the life is. And that release might look like different things to to different people. Um, Jesus is saying, you know, this isn't something... uh, (laughs) Your names are not something that hang on the temple. I'm the new temple. You know, your names are not something that's linked to Israel's faithfulness, which was never that great anyways, or the sacrificial system of religion or organized religion, or the many good rules and regulations that earn you respect and earn you righteousness. Jesus says, come to me. I'm God's promise. You're going to have to stop abiding in the wrong concepts. It won't bear lasting fruit. So he's looking and he's saying, that's not what I'm about. Let go and move toward me. And that for you today, that might mean releasing long-held beliefs that you're afraid to let go of, but they're not the truth of Jesus. It might mean releasing your righteous anger that is accidentally starting to displace the love that Jesus said would change the world. Maybe it's releasing your need to prove yourselves to others as a wonderful, impressive Christian. It might mean releasing your need to have everything figured out 
in order to walk deeply with God. It might mean releasing your need for assurance that the religious duties always provide. Religious duties are great at providing assurance that I'm good with God. You know, I just do all the right things, do my devotions for, you know, 17 minutes every day because last month was 15 and now God's happier with me and I feel good. By the way, I think those are wonderful practices when they're not religious practices. And all of a sudden, we find that we're releasing things that hinder us from bearing fruit. And Jesus says, stay connected to me, love God, love others, you will bear fruit. Um, and I'm just going to mention this at the end, because so, many of this can, so much of this can feel like responsibility. But um, right at the end of this, not at the end of this passage fully, but um, one of the things that he says in John 15 in, in verse 11, he says, I've told you all of these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Okay? And, and right before that he says um, that he remains in the Father's love and the Father's love is in him and it's this great love fest. Um, but anyways, he says, I've told you this so my joy might be in you and that your joy might be complete. So I'm telling you this to remain in me because there's joy that's available. It's not just doing the right thing so that we hit our responsibilities as Christians. It's not that at all. Jesus is saying, remain in me and you will find joy. It'll emerge. No more shoulds, no more obligations. Because when our identity is so completely tied up in Jesus and so connected, and that joy of Jesus' connection with the Father is shared with us and we're invited into that, then we can walk through really dark times with no questions about where our worth is. We can forgive even when it's not reciprocated. You know, we can refuse to do violence even when violence is done to us. Uh, there's, there's joy even when things and circumstances in our life are not working out exactly as we want. We can have joy even in the experience of losses because it's a gift that God cultivates and brings in us by being connected to the vine, by sharing in the joy of relationship. It's always available, and it's radical, and it's different than the way the world provides it. So, the reality of any type of gardening, of any type of growth, of any type of pruning, is that it takes time. And it's not quick and easy, but it's really, really, really good and really, really, really healthy. So, I just, uh, I want you to take a moment and remember that we have an opportunity to be different. True growth is really difficult to cultivate, but we have, as people with our eyes on Jesus, centered on Jesus, we have an opportunity to be different. We have an opportunity to be people who are so well grounded in Jesus that we're not defensive when we meet people that we disagree with, that, that um, our character and our way of responding to situations starts to look like the very person of Jesus because the chlorophyll that flows through Jesus is flowing through us as well. And so those are the opportunities that we have, and Jesus is inviting us to grow in deeper ways, um, to remain in him, and to experience the joy that maybe then we can share with a world that needs joy and love and compassion and all of the things that Jesus wants to grow out of us. So um, let's just sit with Jesus for a moment, and then we can have maybe three to four minutes of uh, just a couple of, of responses to a dialogue question, just to keep it um, as a community together, and then we'll uh, share in the table. Lord, in these moments right now where we all might see different imagery in a story like this, I, I pray that you would just, uh, more than anything else, that you would move us to the peace that comes 
with moving from the temple to the soil with you. Open our eyes and help us to experience um, the love. And even if we don't experience this incredible moment of connection with you, Lord, I pray that you give us enough to keep us moving toward your way in the world. I pray that we have a sense, some sense of what that connectedness looks like, even if it's through the body of Christ right here, so that we might bear the type of fruit that you want, so that our world would be transformed to your dream of the kingdom of God. Amen.